Every once in a while, uh, it's good for um, a church like ours or any church really to go uh, and do some review and kind of uh, go back to the basics and, and, and remind ourselves as a church of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and maybe even kind of what makes us special as a church. Um, if you remember back to the end of, of 2023, that's right, <laughs> um, you'll remember that our, our messages for a long time there are focused on the core values and the core beliefs of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which is the denomination of which we're a part. And of course, we believe they're not just the core values of a denomination, but they're really in a lot of ways the core value of, of Jesus himself. And certainly as a church, we want to just uh, lock in with that and make sure that we're supporting that movement, and, and we are very, very um, happy to be part of this, or this Christian Missionary Alliance, this, this movement that is, is represented all around the world as we bring the gospel to so many nations. Um, but beginning this Sunday, uh, and then really continuing, really beginning next Sunday, I should say, and then for, for five weeks, we're going to be getting even more specific. We're going to be doing a short series of messages that are based on the five core values not of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, but of First Alliance Church of Lexington, North Carolina. Uh, many of you are familiar with these values that are specific to our church, if only because you see them posted above the closet door over to my left and to your right up here at the front of the sanctuary. Uh, you'll see them over there. Um, I'm not looking at them, but I hope I know them, that they are discipleship, authenticity, compassion, multi-generational ministry, and world missions. And um, if you are looking at those things every week, hopefully they've sunk in a little bit. But these are the things that we believe make First Alliance rather distinctive as a local church. Not that, obviously, every church should be compassionate and every church should practice discipleship. But these are kind of our calling card in our community. They're the things that we really want to major on and that we believe make us distinctive in some ways. And as such, we consider them to be kind of who we are. And, and so these things form the guardrails, which is why the, the visual looks like that, the guardrails for our ministry, kind of keeping us on track. And these are the principles which govern some of the decisions that we make and, and the direction that we go. It's who we are as a church and who we hope to continue to be as a church, no matter what we look like on the outside, no matter how big or how small the church is, no matter who comes. Um, First Alliance Church is to be known by these things. Today, what I want to do, though, is present you with a kind of a prologue, almost, to talking about these values, and to do that by giving you what I would say is the foundation of our ministry as a church. If these five values over here are the guardrails to keep us on track, what I'm going to talk about today is, is the track, is the foundation that underlies all of the other values and really provides the track on which we run. And I want to start by getting really, really basic with you and ask you one of the most basic questions that everyone should ask and could ask. Some of you have heard it before. The question goes like this. Some of you will recognize it. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Now, that's a funny question. We don't say it very often. We don't really use those words anymore. We don't use the word chief or end or even man like that, that sentence does because it's an old question. But a more up-to-date phrasing would be something like this. What is the purpose of human beings? What are we doing on this earth? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? It's actually a pretty good question to ask yourself in the new year, right? I mean, if, if 2024 is just starting out, and if you want 2024 to be a good, successful, productive year, it might help to find out what you're supposed to be doing with it, right? I mean, what's your purpose in it? What's your purpose in living through it? Do you have a purpose in life? 
Is, your, is, your, is the way you live your life at all connected to what you say that purpose is? I mean, and, and could you voice it? A lot of people would say, for instance, that the purpose of life is to find happiness. The purpose of my life is to be happy. Other people might say that the, the, the purpose of my life is to serve other people. Others would say the purpose of life is to, is to find out who you are and, and to discover who what your identity is and to live into that. Others would say maybe it's a combination of those things. And then others still would say that life really has no purpose. There's no purpose we're given. We just need to, to do the best we can and, and, have, and sort of make up a purpose for ourselves because that's the best we can do. But if you've heard the question before, what is the chief end of man? You've probably also heard the answer. The question is very famous. It comes from something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a series of 107 questions. By the way, it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism because there's a longer one that's about twice as long and twice as many questions. Uh, but this was, for, this was very basic. 107 questions and answers developed by a group of leading pastors and theologians in the English-speaking world way back in the middle of the 1600s, the 1640s. And it was designed to instruct Christians, especially new Christians, in the basic truths of the Christian life, what they should believe, how they should live, and what they need to know going forward. And although this catechism, or way of teaching through question and answers, was first used uh, in the Reformed churches of England and Scotland and Northern Ireland, it was so well-conceived and so well-constructed that it was picked up by a lot of other Christian groups and denominations, and they would use it as a template for their own teaching and just kind of change parts of it. And, and this first question became very, very famous to the extent that a lot of you have probably heard it. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of human beings? And here is the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, the chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you think about it, there's a lot contained in that answer. As we've been singing about today, our God is infinitely glorious. He is infinitely beautiful. He is infinitely magnificent. And He desires above all else that our lives point to and magnify His glory. Now, when God wants that, you need to know that He's not being selfish and he's not being egotistical to say that we should live for his glory. No, he can't be like that. It's impossible for God to be egotistical and arrogant because God is actually the greatest being in the universe. And if he did not value his own glory above all other things, you could almost say that he'd be guilty of idolatry. But notice something. Notice that in seeking glory from us, God did not make us merely to be slaves to serve him which is the idea that most ancient cultures had about the gods. That's why they created human beings, because they needed something from us, and they needed us to do some of their work for them and feed them and help them and, and be slaves to them, and so they created human beings to do the work of the gods. That's not what the true God did. God didn't say, oh, no, I need some glory. I need to get some glory. What am I going to do? I need it. Well, I'll make some people so they'll meet my needs. No, God doesn't have needs such that we could ever hope to meet them. God is all-sufficient in himself. And so he created us to enjoy him, to enjoy him, to have our needs met by him, to trust him for everything, 
to enjoy his glory, to enjoy his presence, to find total satisfaction and ultimate joy in an everlasting love relationship with him. In short, he created us to enjoy him forever. And if you think about it, those two phrases are actually pretty related to each other. We do them at the same time. You'll often hear Pastor TJ pray this in the midst of a, of a service. He'll say something like this, God, for your glory and for our joy. Pastor John Piper famously said it like this. You've heard me quote it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So it's not really a stretch at all to say that the chief purpose of man, of humanity, is actually to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And yet, and yet, to say that immediately leads to another question. Now, we have been at about 30,000 feet so far, right, up in the up in the the super-duper stratosphere of theology. Let me bring it down a little bit because the next question, which is very natural, is, okay, we're supposed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, how in the world are we supposed to do this? And where are we supposed to look to find out how to do this? Is someone going to tell us? Is it just going to come to us? Where do we find this out? The fastest-growing religion in America today, if you want to call it that, is the religion that's usually called, when they, they do surveys and things, they're called nuns. Not N-U-N-S, that's not the fastest growing religion, N-O-N-E-S, which, which usually stands for people that will say that they're spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. Or they might say this, I'm religious but I'm not really connected to any, other, any particular religion or any particular faith tradition that would commonly be thought of as a religion. So these are the people that they sense that there's something spiritual in the world. They sense that there's more than just matter They sense that they need to get in touch with something bigger than themselves. They know there's a God out there to be discovered, but they're trying to figure him out on their own. Some are seeking him through meditation and tranquility. Some are seeking him by looking within themselves for the the inner light, the God within. Others try to find God by getting in touch with nature. There are all sorts of other methods out there used by themselves and in combination for trying to connect with the divine But what is the real answer to the follow-up question? What is God's answer? What is the true answer that God himself would give us for how to find out how to glorify him and enjoy him? Well, one place we might want to go is question number two of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is not nearly as famous as question number one, but it says this, it basically treats this follow-up question head-on. Here's the question. What rule has God given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So there you go. How are we supposed to find out how to do this? Here's the answer. Ready? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So these pastors and theologians had concluded that though there are many sources of knowledge and guidance in the world, many places you could look to for truth, You could be guided by your intellect or by reason or by science. You could be guided by your experience or the experience of others who share with you. You could be guided by the traditions of your church and the teachings of an organization or religious body. And these are very important sources of truth. Yet none of them is to be the ultimate authority in our lives. The ultimate authority, the one in which all others rest and by which they must be tested is the written Word of God. And that has been the rallying cry of Protestant Christians for the last 500 years. Sola Scriptura. 
Scripture alone. Or as you learned it, some of you, when you were six years old, and I'll put this song in your head, I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. A few years ago, we did a survey of our congregation here at First Alliance, and we asked you a question. Um, I'm sure about two-thirds of you probably were here when we did this, but we asked you why you choose to be part of First Alliance instead of some other church in town. And thinking back on your responses, because uh, we went over them, we had a big group that got together to go over the responses and try to find out what they meant. But thinking back to them, that you really did bring out all of our five core values. I was impressed. Discipleship, authenticity, compassion, multi-generational ministry, and world missions were all in the answers to those surveys, which is very encouraging. But by far, your number one answer was something else. By far, like 80%, your number one answer was this. First Alliance Church is my church because it's a place where the Word of God is taught and preached and valued by the congregation. As a matter of fact, we were keeping this in mind when we changed the logo for the church. Our new church logo is meant to communicate this. There it is before you. And as I show this to people, I will admit that most people that I show this, I say, what is this? And they say, I don't know. But when I tell you that it's supposed to suggest a Bible, can you kind of see it now? Like with the little curve and it's, it's got, some of you are seeing it for the first time, like, Psh! okay, yeah. Do you see that it's a Bible? Okay, now that you see it, you can't unsee it, right? It's always a Bible now. First Alliance deliberately tries to live out the answer to question number two of the catechism, that the Bible is our ultimate rule of faith and practice when seeking to glorify and enjoy God. And this seems to be a good thing, right? You all think it's a good thing, that's why you're here. But we still need to ask a question. Is that true? Is it valid to say that, that the Bible is the only, the only rule? I mean, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, as wonderful as it is, was devised by men, not directly by God, right? So is it accurate on this count? Did they get it right? Does the Bible itself even agree with the statement that it is the only rule for figuring out how to glorify and enjoy God? Well, it definitely does. And I could take you to countless passages of the Scripture and we'll mention some of them today, but there may be no better place to go this morning for our text than to the very first psalm. So turn to the book of Psalms, which is not hard to find, and then turn to chapter 1, which probably isn't hard to find either. So Psalm 1, and we'll just read through this short psalm together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. The psalm asks the question that we've been exploring today. How do I fulfill my purpose? How do I make my life count? How do I live a successful life as, as God would define success? In verse 1, we have the description of a wasted life. A person who is carried along by his own fleshly desires and then 
one thing leads to another, and he finds himself going deeper and deeper down into this hole. He finds himself walking or living on the path of sinners. He ends up going deeper and deeper so that he's eventually mocking righteousness and scoffing at the things of God, becoming more and more set in his ways, more and more lost in his outlook. And there are countless voices in our world today that are calling us to go in this very direction. What happened to this person? What happens to this person who is presumably exposed to the Word of God? Well, maybe he gets disillusioned. Maybe he gets full of himself. Maybe he just listens to the wrong voices for way too long and they kind of become part of him. What happens to him in the end? He lives a wasted life, accomplishing nothing of real value. He ends up being blown away like chaff in the wind and he perishes. Meanwhile, the latter part of the psalm, especially verse 3, describes a person who is different. This person, first of all, is stable. Now, stability may not seem real, you know, super exciting to you, but I want you to notice that even though this person is stable, his life is not boring or stagnant, not at all. And on the contrary, it's dynamic, it's exciting, it's fruitful, it's growing. New things are happening. It's productive, it's prosperous, it's successful by God's standards. So this is a person, in verse 3, who is fulfilling his or her purpose. What's the difference? How is he doing this? Well, the answer is clearly found in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. The successful, productive, purposeful person is the one who meditates regularly on the Word of God, so he is firmly planted in its soil. Church family, if you are serious about following Jesus, you will be serious about getting into God's Word and getting God's Word into you. Internalizing it, reading it, studying it, hearing it preached, discussing it with other Christians, spending time thinking about it, even committing some of it to memory. If you're not serious about interacting meaningfully with God's Word, I would really question how serious you are about being a Christian. Now, you might say something like this. Okay, that sounds good. I, I get it. I get it. The Word of God is important. But, but this is a psalm. This is like an Old Testament person living a long time ago. It, haven't some things changed since Psalm 1 was written with regard to the Word of God? I mean, after all, this, this Old Testament psalmist here is talking about meditating on the law. That doesn't sound super exciting. Really, the law? Is that really valid anymore? I mean, this doesn't sound really New Testament to me. I mean, is, is there, I'm a Christian, so is there still a law for the Christian? I thought, I thought that Jesus had rescued us from the law. Well, let's talk about that. A lot of Bible interpreters like to divide the Bible up into two parts, law and gospel. You may have heard this, and it's a very helpful way, honestly, of looking at the Bible, for sure. What's the law? Law is anything that God tells us to do. So it's commandments, it's instructions. Law is what we are supposed to do. And it's not just the law of Moses from the Old Testament, although, or just the Ten Commandments, although that's a big part of it. But it's all the commandments, everything we are told to do in the Bible. That's law. Meanwhile, gospel is the rest of the Bible in the sense that gospel refers not to what we are told to do, but to what God has done. 
culminating, of course, in the gospel of Christ, the good news about Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died in our place for our sins, and then rose again so that we could be justified, meaning right with God. That's gospel. And some people will say, well, now that we've got gospel, we don't need law anymore because the gospel has overcome the law. After all, didn't Jesus deliver us from the curse of the law? More than that, doesn't the Bible say that love is the fulfillment of the law? That loving God and loving our neighbor pretty much sums up the whole thing? In fact, doesn't the Bible tell us that when we're born again and receive the Holy Spirit into our life that as part of that, God actually takes his law and writes it on our hearts? So then, why do we need to read the Bible so much and follow any specific commandments? Can't we just trust Jesus, love people, listen to the Spirit, and follow our hearts? Wouldn't that be enough? Listen, brothers and sisters, a large part of the church today, especially in America, has a head full of mush, biblically speaking. And we are falling into all sorts of error, all sorts of immorality, and all sorts of ineffectiveness because someone has convinced us that all we need to do is trust Jesus, listen to the Spirit, love people, and follow our hearts without telling us that these things cannot possibly be done apart from a serious commitment to knowing and obeying God's written word. Think about this. If the gospel cancels out all the commands of the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled the law and took away the curse and all that, then why does Paul tell Timothy... That all Scripture, which at that time was just the Old Testament, he tells Timothy all Scripture was not only God-breathed, inspired by God, but also profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What's up with that? If love replaces the written word, so all I have to do is say, well, if I just love people, everything will be great. Why does Paul take a whole chapter of the Bible to use words to explain to us what love is and what it's not? Shouldn't we pay attention to that? Why does Jesus himself devote so much of his teaching to explaining and clarifying the meaning of the Ten Commandments? Because if you read the Sermon on the Mount, that's pretty much what he's doing most of the time. Why does he do that? And why, when Jesus was giving us the Great Commission, didn't he say this? Why didn't he just say, look, go make disciples of all nations and baptize them and tell them to trust in me, listen to the Spirit, love people, and follow their hearts? Is that what Jesus said? No, he didn't. He said something different. Why instead does he say, go throughout the whole world making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you? But wait, that sounds like law. Isn't that law? Isn't Jesus telling us what to do? Why, why, why are Jesus and Paul taking us back to law when we're under grace. Here's why. First of all, I want to be absolutely clear so you do not misunderstand ever. We are not saved by obeying the law. I can't say it any more clearly. We are not saved by obeying the law. And in fact, we are not sanctified, made more holy, by obeying the law either. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. And this was true not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. Notice how God begins the Ten Commandments. He says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he goes on with the other nine commandments. 
It isn't, look, I've got these commandments for you. If you obey them, then I'll deliver you. No. God comes to the Israelites and he said, I just delivered you. Now, here's the way you're supposed to live as my redeemed people. Here's what it looks like. And so for us today, salvation precedes obedience. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, period. We are sanctified, made holy by God's grace through faith in Jesus, period. But, comma, God uses the law in both of those activities. And here's how. Here's how. First, he uses the law to drive us to Christ. You can go to the Old Testament Ten Commandments and all the stuff that comes after that. You can look at all the commandments there. You can go, you say, you know what, I don't want to look at the Old Testament. I want to go to the New Testament because it's more fun and more gracious. Fine. Go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 5 through 7. I would submit to you that that's tougher. So go and look at those commandments. And what happens? You look at those and you say, I can't do that. I've already gotten an F minus, minus, minus on that. I can't bring that grade up. I'm in deep trouble. I can't do that perfectly or even come close to obeying it. Well, then you look at the punishment for those who disobey the law and you say, not only am I guilty, but I'm in trouble. I'm condemned. I need a Savior. And this drives us to the cross where Jesus, who has fulfilled the whole law successfully, then paid the price for all of our sin, taking the curse of the law upon himself and rescuing us from bondage to that law. So we are now free in Christ. We are now free. We are right with God, even though we're lawbreakers. But just because we're free of the law's curse does not mean that the law is finished with its work on us. Now what happens is Jesus sends us back to the law. Not the whole law. Not the whole law. I don't have time to go into all the details of this, but suffice it to say, you do not need to offer animal sacrifices anymore. This altar is not equipped for that. You don't need to keep the Jewish holidays anymore. You are allowed to eat pork and bacon, which I'm getting some amens, but you know, if you think about it, Lexington, North Carolina would have been Sodom and Gomorrah a long time ago if, if that weren't the case, right? You can do those things. But Jesus does send us back to the moral law of God, not as a means of salvation, and not because it has the power to sanctify us, because it doesn't, but as a guide, a guide that shows us what it looks like to live a life that looks like the life of Jesus. And so the law, again, becomes profitable in all the ways Paul tells us to use it for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteous living. Now, as for listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, which was part of that objection back then, remember? Listening to the Spirit's voice, because now you've got the Spirit of God in your life, and He's communicating with you. So, do you listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. You should definitely listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. But if you're going to do that... Wouldn't it maybe be a good idea to start by reading the book that he wrote? Who wrote this? This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. He's the author. Okay. What about that last question? Didn't God, when we got saved, when the Holy Spirit came in, did, did God not write his law upon our hearts? Doesn't it say that somewhere in the Bible? It does. It says it in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. That's what God does as part of the new covenant that we're celebrating today when we take the Lord's Supper. It's part of the deal. 
But what exactly does that mean? That God writes his law on our hearts. It's obviously not a literal statement, right? I mean, if you have open heart surgery, the doctor's not going to cut you open and find the Ten Commandments engraved in your left ventricle, right? It's not right there. So you say, well, uh, well it's, it's internal to me. God has written it on, on my inner being. He's written it on my mind. Okay, okay. So does that mean that as soon as you got saved, you all of a sudden knew a whole bunch of Bible verses you'd never read before and you started reciting them? Did that happen? Well, no. Maybe it just means that, that when you got saved, you got the new ideas that God put in your heart about what was right and wrong, and you got a new sensitivity that recognizes spiritual truth and spiritual error for what it is. Okay, that's true. That's true. The Holy Spirit does do that in your heart. But So you might think, well, isn't that enough, or do I still need to, to learn the content of, of the written word? Let me give you um, maybe an illustration and then maybe two illustrations. But let me tell you about something God has written on my heart, okay? It's called music, okay? This is a gift, and all of you have different gifts, things that you're good at, things that God has given you, but one of the things God has, talents that God has given me is, has to do with music. I'm not the world's most musical person, but I do have a good ear, and I have the ability to understand and appreciate and sing and play music, okay? So it's, you could say it's written on my heart, right? Or you could say, I've got the music in me. But you know what? That would do me almost no good if I had never had a piano lesson or if no one ever taught me how to blow properly into the mouthpiece of a saxophone or if I had never learned time signatures or major and minor scales or chord progressions. You know, the, the music might have been in my heart, it might have been inside of me, but it still needed to be refined and developed and brought out to where it could do some good. Having the music in me written on my heart wasn't enough. I needed content, I needed information, I needed instruction. I needed correcting, rebuking, and teaching, and training. Here's how you might want to think about God writing his law in your heart. I think this might be helpful. Think about it this way. Before you place your faith in Christ, you, were, you really couldn't understand and internalize the word of God, not in any life-changing way. You could understand it with your mind. It's written in English with sentences and everything, so you could kind of work your way through it and figure out basically what it means. But it doesn't really do you any good spiritually. It just bounces off you without changing you at all. That's what happens before you come to Christ. And 2 Corinthians tells us that the reason that's happening, or did happen before you came to Jesus, is because there was a veil covering your heart. There was a veil covering it, so the word couldn't get in. But then it says this in 2 Corinthians 3, but when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And what this does is it gives the Holy Spirit the opportunity to come in and start to do his work. And here's what I want you to think of the Spirit doing. I want you to think of the Spirit like with an engraver's tool in his hand. And, and what he's doing is he's, he's carving into your heart a very deep mold, kind of an etching Kind of like you would pour some kind of a hot liquid metal into, that kind of mold. And now, after salvation, as the word is preached to you, and as it's taught and read and discussed, it's being poured into that mold, and now you have a place to put it. Now there's a place that can receive it, and it can take shape, and it can solidify. The outline of the law is there when you get saved. But now you need to have the substance put in. And when you hear something other than the word of God claiming to be truth, or even when you hear the Word of God taught maybe wrongly, it doesn't seem to fit. Something seems off, and you know it, but why? Well, because it doesn't match what the Spirit has carved into your heart. And when the Word comes to you, on the other hand, in all of its truth, what happens is it fits right into that mold, and when you receive it, here's the thing, 
it's almost like you already knew it, right? It's like you're much less likely to say, I mean, it might have been new information in a way, but in a way it wasn't. It was like it was already there. And so when you're interacting with the Word of God and it comes home to your heart, you're much less likely to see, wow, I never knew that. And you're much more likely to say, yes, that's right. That resonates with my spirit. I know that's true, and I know that now I've heard it, I can understand it, and I need to apply it. What's happening is the Holy Spirit who lives within you is affirming the truth of the Word of God in your heart and pouring it into that mold that he carved for you. But again, the bottom line today, and really the only application I want you to walk away with today is simply this. If you're serious about following Jesus, then you'll be serious about getting into the Bible and getting the Bible into you this year. You still have to read it. You still have to hear it. You still have to dwell on it. Otherwise, you will never see any lasting, meaningful change in your life. When you got saved, God gave you a place to put this word. Now pour it in there. Pour it in there. Now as I close, I just want to share with you some good news, okay? This is not the gospel, but this is good news. And that is this, that at First Alliance Church, we are committed to providing every possible opportunity for that to happen in your life. We don't actually set your alarm clock for a half hour earlier than you normally would and then force you to get up and study the Word. I don't know. We probably could do that. I'm sure the technology exists. We could probably do that if you want. We'll have a sign-up sheet. But beyond that, we'll do everything we can. We do strive to preach solid biblical truth on Sunday mornings, but listen, that will never be enough for you to grow the way God wants you to. So we have Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 o'clock where we dig into the Bible, often verse by verse. We have what we call D groups where three or four men or women or youth will open up God's word together. They'll learn from it. They'll pray for each other as they interact, and they'll hold each other accountable for applying the Bible to their lives. We have small groups where people get to know each other better and grow in relationship while they interact around the word of God. All these things are happening all the time here at First. What I'm really doing today, actually, is I'm setting up Pastor TJ for his sermon. He's going to preach next week as our associate pastor of discipleship, and he's going to talk about our first core value, which is discipleship, becoming a disciple. And the word disciple means a lot of things to a lot of people, but the simple and most basic and most literal definition is a learner, a learner. Church family, somebody needs to learn the Word of God. It should be us. We need to learn God's Word. It's the only rule of faith and practice. It's the bottom line authority in the Christian life, and it's the primary tool that God has given us for learning how to fulfill our purpose as human beings, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever.